My friends, it is time to record the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, having put a beautiful little NTT data-sponsored bow tie around the 2021 IndyCar Championship. One friend of the show, member of our Pru Day listener group, <laughs> Alex Pillow. Wow, 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 wow. So if we look at his work over the course of the season, incredible. Who predicted it? Nobody. Maybe his mom, dad, and him and his girlfriend, but right? Who had Alex Pillow, 2021 NTT IndyCar Series champion predicted? I mean, come on. It just, it wasn't a thing. So he did that. Uh, some guy named Colton Herta. Um, huh? Two races in a row of just insanity from that kid. We're going to be talking about that for a little while. Plenty to talk about during the off season. Uh, amazing, amazing weekend of competition. There was one ugly spot. We'll get into that a little bit in your Q&A. That being qualifying and race controlling where, yeah. So if you're someone who spends a lot of time in the paddock, knows a lot of people, and they talk to you and you talk to them. Uh, in this case, it was listening to a lot of people in the paddock, some of them who drive, some who engineer, some who manage, some who do a lot of other things. Coming away at the end of Saturday in a state of almost global depression at the low aptitude demonstrated with some of the issues that took place in qualifying. And I can tell you that that did not dissipate by the end of Sunday. Uh, those conversations were still being received, uh, still being had. I want to dive into that properly, so we'll see how far we get on the show tonight. i probably not going to put that into my post-race cool-down column on Racer, other than just a note that we're going to get to it, just not here, because it deserves a bigger look into some of the systemic issues that need to be fixed in race control so that was one of the downers uh the other one uh good old harpoon ed jones just spoiling everyone's day in terms of drama as to who might win the championship we had that answered on lap one unfortunately pato awards day just ruined so yeah and hey we had four Three driver signings, announcements, moves, whatever. One re-signing with Renus VK. Callum Eilat being picked up for 2022. Uh, what, Monday morning we had Simon Pagino confirmed at Meyershank Racing slash leaving Team Penske. We had a little bit of fun and snafu on Friday with Andretti Autosport announcing Romain Grosjean. I know, big surprise, right? Um... That was supposed to go out as a press release at 12.45 p.m. Pacific. Uh, some of us had the embargoed release in advance. We're working that up to get it ready to file and post right at 12.45 Pacific. And due to a little bit of oops, uh, might have just been the software fighting back, a little bit of time zone oops. So that release which we'd all just received a little bit before 9.45, went live at 9.45. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
And so, yeah, uh, there was kind of a, a collective, hey, wait a minute. It says don't post this till 1245, but it's 945. And so, hey, again, no harm, no foul. It's not as if it was a shock, but nonetheless, uh, good on Roma. If I remember, I'll mention a little later in the show, uh, there's some questions about, hey, are you guys now talking and happy and whatever? Oh, I learned that no, indeed, he's uh, he's officially uh, grumpy. But uh, that's, again, whatever. Life goes on. I've got bigger things to worry about. So nonetheless, let's get going with uh, some other little topics on our show before we get to your Q&A. It's a really, really busy but awesome, awesome time in Long Beach. I want to say a huge thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for supporting all that we do. Awesome little note that Ed Justice, who, funnily enough, part of the Justice Brothers, friend and patron of the show, got to shoot for a little bit with him at turn 11 and ed has been photographing since i think longer than i've been alive beyond being a dear friend and a supporter of the show through the justice brothers automotive chemicals and lubricants it was phenomenal to stand almost hip to hip with ed shooting in turn 11 it's just a thrill for me knowing how much Love him and his family. Respect him for all that he does and has done in racing, supporting racing for so long, but also as a, a highly talented photographer whose work I marvel over. It's just so cool, right? The unexpected little joys in life, getting to stand next to him. And then when we were done shooting there, got to go give a big hug to Therese Lombardi and her husband, Mike Lombardi, two amazing SCCA volunteers, corner workers, the the true unpaid heroes who make motor racing possible. Got to see them. They were in turn 11 flagging, so gave them a big hug. Uh, I believe Kurt Pose as well was there, uh, someone who sends in questions every now and then. He took our photo, so great to meet Kurt in person. So just a lot of, lot of, lot of love. And also... The third member of our support group, that being torontomotorsports.com, Derek Koska, who flew out to Long Beach. So got to spend some time with our man, Mr. Koska, in person, walking around the paddock, had some lunch at Honda, I think on Saturday, and just, yeah, one of the great people. Hi, Rosie, as one of our cats is meowing because she does that. Uh, Great to spend time with Derek. He brought down some shirts for me, uh, special, special made for me to bring to Robin Miller's memorial this weekend and wear. So, again, big thanks to him. Just so awesome to uh, have family on site like Derek. So that was the big thing. And so just of all the, uh, of all the awesome little happenings at Long Beach, in addition to the race, and hey, I forgot to turn off my ringer. It's my pal Kelby Krause, communications man from Chip Ganassi Racing, who listens to this show. So hey, Kelby, thanks for texting me and me forgetting to turn off the ringer. I'm an idiot. I asked him a question for an article, and he done helped me. So see how that works? Kind of fun. Um, let's talk about a couple other things, just experiences had at the event tried to change my coverage approach over the last three weekends. 
these being the first weekends back for me covering on site at any motor racing event for a really long time, decided to shift the strategy. And I don't know if it was noticeable or not. And as always, send me feedback if you feel I need feedback, positive, negative, or otherwise. I tried to change what I was doing to make use of my telephone a lot more. So the traditional coverage model that I've done, we've done with Racer and whatnot for a long time is you get formal content. You get your session reports, free practice one, New Garden's fastest, whatever. You'll get the video with whether it was me and Robin, uh, hamburger and french fry stuff, um, maybe a driver interview, who knows. You'll get some other feature, little sidebar content. This is happening, that's going on, whatever. It's all pretty much tied, though, to going and sitting down in the media center and writing something and filing it or editing a video or whatever and filing it. Just decided to change that approach at Portland and continue that as much as I could each day uh, throughout Portland, Monterey, and Long Beach and just use my dumb phone more. Some of you might be asking, well, Pruitt, why didn't you do this sooner? I don't know. I'll admit, with Robin's loss, my head's gone into a pretty significant reevaluation process of how things have been done and how they can be done better, knowing that he and I were in a groove for a really long time, and however things were, that's what they were, and it seemed to work. Without him here, definite reappraisal. And so one of the things I realized that without my co-pilot uh, here to either double up on content or whatever else, uh, just need to do more, want to do more. So rather than limiting things to when I can get back to the media and sit down and spend an hour or two or whatever it is to generate that content on racer.com, take a photo and show it and talk about it. Capture something unique and bring it right to you. Uh, tried to do a somewhat frequent flow of little videos, one to two minutes long about whatever. Could be with a person, could be a thing that I saw in the paddock, kind of an insider-y racing thing to show you about IndyCar. Who knows? I think I probably have four or five or six of those that I shot that I'm just holding on to to roll out here during the off-season. Probably won't last too long before I'm done with those, but just try to change that up. And I would say based on you know shares, retweets, likes, and whatever, it appears to have been well-received, but certainly kind of an ongoing tweak. So I'm going to keep tweaking and figuring that out. Got a little while till we have the next race, but nonetheless, I think I'm just going to keep trying to do that and fill the time in between those formal on-track sessions or whatever else so that... For those of you who can't be there, I can be the conduit for you. Bring you there using my sometimes spotty AT&T 5G cell coverage and my what's now getting to be old, I guess, iPhone 11. Man, it sure was shiny and new not too long ago, but a couple years ago. Anyways, hopefully that worked out well. I enjoyed it, and I will certainly keep doing that unless you all say no stop um i'll rattle off some names here of folks that i saw or enjoyed time with uh somehow despite planning ahead of time we were going to get together and have a little bit of a champagne celebration for his induction to the long beach motorsports walk of fame or whatever willie 
T-Ribs and I and his amazing wife, Stephanie, we did not see each other all weekend. We communicated many times, made plans. They all failed. So <sighs> didn't get to see my man ribs, but uh, we have spoken and we have laughed and we have, uh, yes. So uh, saw Michel Jourdain a number of times. Just love that guy. He, he's continuing to try and do big things to create a stronger pipeline of young Mexican talent, Latin American talent, get them into road to Indy and move upwards. Had a heartwarming conversation with John Oriovitz, who I haven't spoken with in, I mean, and I mean, I'm not talking about saying hi in passing. I mean, a real conversation, 10 years plus, uh, John came over and wanted to clear the air and apologized for some really bizarre and honestly dark behavior that I've truly chosen to turn the other cheek on for about a decade. Um, it was really awesome to have John come over and sit down and just want to uh, clear the air and restore a re- relationship that was once really good and uh, very warm. So that was honestly one of the true, true highlights of the weekend, completely independent of anything happening on track. Um, another conversation that I had with someone who I had spoken with, but had never met and would not pretend to have known well, that being Rod Reed. Must have spent, I don't even know, 45 minutes or more speaking with Rod, learning about his life and history, knowing what he's been trying to do through the race for equality and change, through running the Force Indy program, but really getting a chance to get to know him, some deep conversations about a number of topics so uh, truly truly awesome uh what else can i tell you devlin de francesco love this kid coming to indycar next year he is cute saw him friday morning free practice one uh kind of hiding a little bit at the back of ryan hunter ray's timing stand now devlin who is possessed with race car driving talent, isn't necessarily possessed with exceptional height. So it kind of worked for him to be at the back of the club and kind of hard to see. I did think I spotted when I turned over and happened to catch him or, you know, see him, but catch eyes with him. Uh, I think he saw me, and I swear he dropped down just a little bit <laughs> to leave some question as to whether it was really him. So I don't know if it was kind of a stealth thing or not, but it's not uncommon for a young Indy Lights driver who knows they're going to IndyCar to spend the last race or two or however many on the timing stand of the team that they will be racing with. As I'm mentioning, or as I'm mentioning in my cool-down column here once I get it done, I mean, Renus VK did the same thing with Ed Carpenter Racing towards the end of 2019. Of course, he hadn't been announced, and they, you know, just like Devlin, but we knew it was happening, and they were being really smart and getting him on the timing stand to listen in, hear the communication style, just get him a little bit coached up. So great to see him there. What else? Uh, saw Alvin Springer, who that's a name for those of you who know it would associate him 99% with sports cars, a true legend among legends in the world of Porsche, 
but also someone who uh, was a part of IndyCar's, uh, the uh, Porsche IndyCar engine program too. Got to catch up with him a little bit. I could just keep running down the line. So many good folks that I got a chance to see who uh, I've either known but haven't seen. Those who I've wanted to meet, like Rod, for example. Um, and then the last quick thing to mention, and then we'll get into your Q&A. The show's going to be a longer one, right? We just wrapped up a season. We have all kinds of stuff to talk about. It was how many of you were so kind to say, hey, hi, hello, uh, holler my name from afar or come up when I was wherever I was. Uh, just the kindness, sweetness, thoughtfulness, throw the wordness at the end of whatever positive things come to mind. And it was three days of just incredible, incredible humanity. Uh, the folks who just stopped to say something kind about my wife, ask about Shabrell, ask about how her uh, fight against breast cancer is going. <sighs> I jokingly said to a friend of mine in the in the PR racing PR business, I might need to hire you to handle my wife's PR because trust me, all anyone wants to talk about or ask about is her and how she's doing, and I can't keep up with it. It's so amazing that I think I need help, and that's just again, just the graciousness. I don't know how to again. I'm running out of words, but. Over the last three weekends, capped off with just overwhelming amount of love and positivity coming our way from, I couldn't count, I don't know how many people, uh, more than a hundred at minimum, asked about my wife uh, or just said something kind about the podcast or my work or whatever. Like just these things where I know who I am. I know what I do. I love what I do. I will always try to be better at receiving compliments and, and such things. It, it just, I've never figured out how for that to feel normal because I never feel like any of it should be coming my way. It should be going to someone else doing something far more important than writing about stupid race cars or talking about them. And it's not stupid. I'm just saying I'm not curing cancer. I'm not solving world hunger. We're just talking about motor racing. Nonetheless, the the beauty and warmth that continues to come our way, uh, it's it renders me speechless. So let me just say thank you to everyone uh, who felt inclined to stop by and check in. One gentleman was even kind enough to ask if he could pray with me. And that was a first. And I said, absolutely and prayed for my wife, prayed for a number of things, and it was just, right? Someone stopped and asked if we could pray together and he could pray for us. Whether you're a person of faith or not, that's that doesn't matter here. It's just the thoughtfulness of someone to want to do that. So let me just say thank you once again to all of you. Um you're beautiful, you're crazy, uh, and there you go. Closed the event uh, Sunday night, 
doing a uh, about a 15-minute podcast with our man Alex Polo. I need to get that posted here for you ASAP. I'll mention um, I'll mention it just because it's a further sign of how incredible he is. And please keep this to yourself. It's not meant for social media or whatever. Uh, we were about to record, and I was just going to call my wife uh, and let her know what we were doing because that was pretty much the last thing I had to do. And um, he grabbed the phone. said, how do you pronounce her first name? And I said, well, it's spelled Chabral, but it's pronounced Chabrel. So turn that last A into an E. And so I, I mean, I dialed the number from my phone. So she sees my name pop up and uh, he grabbed the phone <laughs> and asked how to pronounce her first name correctly. And the champ call the champ called my wife <laughs> and just wanted to check in with her and asked how she was doing and said that, you know, he knows uh, how strong she is and that he wants to meet her and to keep fighting and keep pushing. And I think she was a little bit flabbergasted. And also, <laughs> um, she had been following Lewis Hamilton on Sunday and earning his 100th Formula One victory, which is, again, another uh, just amazing milestone. And wasn't aware that Alex was calling her as the new champion, which is kind of cute. So uh, we'd spoken about Alex before, how much we love him, and just all that, you know, he's just such a sweetheart. And every time he and I speak, first thing he asks, how she is doing. And so he's been doing that for two years now. Um, But she wasn't aware that he was a champ when he was calling. So he handed the phone back to me, and she was like, well, kind of trying to understand what it was. I'm like, so it was Alex is a new champion calling. He's like, ah, handed the phone back to him so she could say congratulations. So. It was just a cute thing. It, it was a really sweet thing, but just uh, a, a personal thing, a private thing. I'm sharing this with y'all because the show is done like it's just family talking about racing as we love it. So uh, just yet another demonstration of the character of this young man who will represent us as our champion for the next year. So with all that said, let's get going with your Q&A. Let's get some music bed going on here. Uh, It is, when is it? 7.45 p.m. on a Tuesday night. I'm going to do as best I can to get to as many as I can and maybe even press the throttle to uh, see if I can pick up the pace a little bit, do uh, do a proper Joseph Newgarden qualifying lap like he had at Long Beach to uh, to grab the old pole position there. So, yeah, um, let's see how we can go here. Kicking off with Andrew Miller, you open the first postseason episode of our little listener Q&A podcast. It says, I don't make the rules, but who will go from Airborne to Victory Lane in St. Pete next February, since that seems to be a new street course requirement? Or maybe at least uh, wheel mounting, if you don't consider what Colton Herta did in the Pato pileup being, quote, airborne. Uh, and then there's some questions here about Ed Jones and race control. And for some of our newer listeners, we tend to open the show with some bigger topics, visit with those for a while, and then we uh, definitely get rolling at a higher pace through some of the others to close the show. Yeah, so I saw Brian Herta 
walking up pit lane on Sunday towards victory lane was there waiting for Seb to finish talking with AJ Foyt and walked over and gave Brian a hug and congratulated him and said, well, you got your, uh, you got your formula, man. When you come back to long beach next year, hit the wall in qualifying, start 14th, uh, or whatever it was. And then race like a madman to the checkered flag and victory lane. And Brian said, yeah, no. Well, how about we just go for pole and win uh, going forward? I'm like, well, you know, that has some merit. It's not as fun. How smart were they, by the way? It's about all they could do. But from a uh, strategery standpoint, uh, going Firestone alternate, the red banded tires, Firestone alternate, a second stint, closing on the primaries, the, uh, the non-red banded, the black, just standard black Firestones. How smart were they to do that? So Colton obviously used up a bunch of push to pass uh, first two-thirds of the race with those faster red banded tires on the car, but that's all he could do. Really, all he could do was give himself the best odds with the best tires to try and make up track position, and he did that. Uh, Super smart. So you look at some others who didn't necessarily follow that trend, who had a lot of uh, distance to make up and you kind of wonder why they didn't go that route. So anyways, that's just from a strategy standpoint, how smart were they to go red, red, black and granted Joseph Newgarden was on his gearbox pretty hard. Those final laps. And there wasn't that big advantage like Colton had in the, uh, the middle section of the race, but nonetheless really smart of them. Uh, so happy for all them just to put it on everybody at their true home race uh, what 40 ish, 45 minutes from the track, uh, where he's from. So plus Nathan O'Rourke, his race engineer. Wow. That guy is so good. Uh, what back to back race wins for Colton, right? I mean, that might not sound like too much of a revelation, but if you take a look at that good old, uh, race results for the entire year who had back to back wins, one driver, Colton Herta, no one else. Um, yeah, so got to uh, got to give him a lot of lot of love for a dominant dominant performance once he got into the race. As for the airboard part, yeah, uh, thank you, Delara, for making very strong cars. If this had been in Formula One, half the field would have collapsed with all four corners snapping off just from the the resonance of Colton's car crashing back down to the ground. That's how weak those cars are. Ours, they're a bit like UFC heavyweights. Oh, they can land a punch, take a punch, you name it. So, yeah, pretty uh, pretty lucky there, though. Uh, we got some dueling, dueling opinions here. First, we're starting off with Thomas Gross. Says, I'll keep it simple. What was Ed Jones thinking? Before I get to that answer, uh, we're going to go to Ryan Terpstra, who says, can we cut Ed Jones a little bit of slack on this one? He says, I expect you to roast me uh, for this like most of the Day did. says he wasn't racing Pato. He was racing Hinch. That type of corner can be done side by side, but taking it offline puts you in an odd spot with relation to the traffic on the racing line. Goes on to say there are a handful of corners like this at other tracks where a driver further up um, that isn't even involved in the battle gets dumped. 
says, sure, it's a penalty, but it's racing. It wasn't overly negligent, and I'm sure Ed wasn't even thinking about Pato. Yeah, so let's dive into this one. Uh, This one's, it's fun, but it's not fun. So, okay, Um, I would love to see some visual examples, Mr. Terpstra, of indie cars, not IMSA, not true indie cars, going into the corner side by side, through the corner side by side, and exiting side by side in racing conditions. Not on a pace lap, not on a warm up lap, not on whatever. Just true. We are side by side, two by two, Noah's Ark in and all the way out. I can't really remember those too much. Uh, one of the cars would inch forward, would go forward, would go backwards, whatever it would be. But true side-by-side, I'm going to have to question that one a lot. So to your point, he wasn't racing Pato. Very true. Hinch left the door open, you could say, was trying to take the faster arc around the corner, which involves a late turn-in, basically blowing the first apex, if you wanted to call it that, and really trying to go deeper into the corner, turn harder to the right, mash the throttle, and fly off of the second apex to get a brilliant run down the street. That's what he was trying to do. Uh, Left the door open, right? Hey, if I'm Ed Jones and that door is open, I'm thinking about it for sure. He opened it enough to where... It was not so much a question as to whether he could get by Hinch. He could. Where the grand error came from was carrying way too much speed. Enough so that he could not slow himself in time without hitting the car in front of Hinch. I realize again that Hinch was to the left. So, But just keep in mind that if we're talking about who is where and what's going on, I would struggle, Ryan, to portray Ed as having no awareness as to young Mr. O'Ward's place on track. Uh, Since they were towards the front-ish of the field, they were racing for the previous 10 corners. Pato was, again, just in front of Hinch. Ed certainly would have seen who's in front of Hinch. And if Hinch decides to go a little bit wider to the left on entry to the hairpin and Ed decides at the very last second, shouldn't even say second, uh, nanosecond to duck to the right to try and take that position. Okay. Got it. We're able to do that. Took, it would appear not enough account into what was in front of him after making that passing attempt and hit the guy who is vying for the championship. So I don't buy the fact that Ed was so locked in on Hinch, he didn't know what was in front of him. Uh, I would say that Ed's opportunism at that corner Not the first time it's happened. It's happened a zillion times before. It will happen at next year's race where somebody sees an opening, takes it, 
and doesn't think enough beyond what would happen afterwards. It's never the, I'm going to pop out and try and take the place from you. It's the, what do I do when I get it? What do I do when I get there with the thing I'm trying to take from you? In this instance, it was not Hinch. Hinch wasn't the one who turned down on Ed, didn't realize he was there. That's the normal thing that happens. Popped out, surprised me, boom, we hit each other, and one of us spins or creates a blockage or others hit us, and all of a sudden it's a, it's a big traffic jam. That's the super common one. The other one is, hey, I overshot my passing attempt and hit someone who was totally innocent. That's, it's pretty much a one or the other. You, and maybe someone can go back and do a little accounting of which one has happened more than the other over the last 10 years at Long Beach. But it's pretty much a binary thing, one or the other. And it was the other. It was absolutely the other. So you'd say, sure, hey, give him a break. No, not really, man. The thing that separates truly great race car drivers from those who are not truly great, it often comes down to situational awareness. For the most part, all of the IndyCar drivers are as fast as one another. They're all, quote, equally fast. Now, we know some have a little fraction more speed than the other, but again, just in a very basic sense, you look at the qualifying times, wherever we go, it's a really narrow band. So the skill part is pretty much a given. A lot of other factors, but really the, the, the spatial awareness, understanding what is going on around you, being a master of it to the highest degree possible, not running into one another, not misjudging where you accelerate, which would then maybe lead you to spin if you misjudge where to accelerate, how hard to accelerate, where you are within the track when you're doing that, right? Hey, if I get on the throttle too soon and my car is too close to the wall to my left, I'm going to slap that wall with the back of the car and end my race. Hey, I'm not really aware of where I am or the other cars are in the braking zone and didn't brake soon enough, ran into the back of the person. Or I got hit from behind because someone who's expecting me to brake at the normal position didn't, and I didn't notice, I didn't look and see in my mirrors that guess what? So-and-so is right on my gearbox. I really need to think about how I do this. We can get, run through a bunch of these scenarios of spatial awareness, where you are in relation to your rivals, the track itself, the boundaries and limitations, side to side, front and back, and how you perform your job within that arena. And so you look at the, let's take Alex Pillow, perfect example. How many races did this guy have in 2021 where he made zero significant mistakes in the race? Almost all of them. He was clean and clear. 
I'm not saying he didn't make little tiny mistakes of just missing an apex by a fraction or breaking being off by a fraction and his lap time was negatively affected by a tenth of a second. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the, dude, did you not know the person was alongside you when you started to turn in? Dude, did you not realize, run down the various options here, where you go, boy, you're really good when you aren't running into things, but uh, you do a lot of running into things. So let's bring this back to Ed. I've never known Ed to be a significant maker of big mistakes behind the steering wheel. Has made them, will continue to make them in whatever series he's competing in in the future. Won't be IndyCar. Uh, But he's not a guy with a reputation as being a real knucklehead. And that's just where this is so ill-fitting for him. Come on, man. Why? Everyone says you can never win the race on the first lap, but you sure can lose it. We all know this. Those who've never raced know this adage. Those who do race certainly know this adage. Those who race hear this from race directors, team managers, race strategists, their engineers, their crew. Hey, man, let's go get them. Just remember, can't win it on the first lap, but you sure can lose it. And so you get something like this where you go, okay, what's the one big trap at Long Beach? And I feel like we've had this discussion numerous times before on the show with past Long Beaches. What's the one big trap? What is the the one little section in the jungle where someone dug a big old pit and covered it up with branches and leaves just to make it look all normal? And you walk along and boop, fall right through it, crash, boom, you're trapped, you are done for. Where is that place? It's turn 11. (laughs) There's no other portion of the track that even comes close to it being as big of a trap. Everybody knows it. Ed's raced at Long Beach multiple times in the past. He knows it. Everyone else knows it. And yet every year someone decides, "Yeah, yeah, look at those branches and leaves just randomly in the middle of the forest. Let me, hey, let me go walk over and stand on, ah, crash, boom. Every year, there's somebody. So what drives me mad here is two things. Realize that Ed's trying to have a good final race. He knows he's not coming back to the team. They know he's not coming back to the team. Totally get it. He's wanting to have a great race. Everyone wants to have a great race, of course. <sighs> Chance to pass Hinch to move one spot up on lap one. Totally get it. Of course you'd want to do that. Got to understand where you're on track, man. Got to understand you're at the trap. Got to understand who's in front of you. These are not like, oh, I need a few minutes to contemplate. No. These are things that a driver sees and knows and understands. And yet, we still have this happening. That's the thing that frustrates you, where you go, come on, man. Really clear who was second in the championship. Really clear where you were coming into the race. 21st in the championship. You could win the race. You know where you're going to end up in the final standings? I don't know. 
20th? 19th? I don't know. It's not going to change anything for you. Team's not going to hold on to you. No one else is going to come offering drives and what, right? It's just it's an end of a chapter. So, again, I get the fact that he wants to go out on a high. you got to realize who is in front of you. The other part that just drives me mad and my same reaction was had after Renus VK took out Scott Dixon and Pillow at Gateway. And he was a man all full of excuses, and you got to see my in-car video, and boy, it solves everything. Right. Whatever. Uh, only want to take a portion of the blame. There's no one else blaming anyone but you here because there's no blame to lay elsewhere. That was a takeaway there. I know he didn't like it. His family didn't like it. Cool. Whatever. Ed Jones, 100% your fault. Claim it. Own it. Say it's yours. You are going, while no one's going to be happy, there will be respect that comes with it. Instead, what did we get? Complete garbage and nonsense. Complete made-up BS. And I'm trying not to swear because as I'm informed, more and more younger listeners listen to the show. Um, his quote was this. It was an eventful day for the Sealmaster Honda. At the start of the race, I was pushing to gain positions. Everyone stacked up, and unfortunately, I caught another car and spun him. He goes on to say other words. Those other words don't interest me. Everyone stacked up, and unfortunately, I caught another car and spun him. Nobody stacked up. Zero percent of people in front of Ed Jones stacked up. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've written some of this in my cooldown lap, right? Dude, do you realize there were TV cameras there? You realize this wasn't like an old-timey 1920s radio broadcast where nobody was at the track to really see it happen and you all had to go by radio. Yeah, and he went down the inside, see? And he didn't quite make it all the way through, see? And he hit a guy and spun him, see? Like, what are you thinking, do you think nobody watched the race? I don't know if you noticed this, but at turn 11, they installed a new overhead crane with a camera actually over the racing surface on top of the cars. Caught the whole thing. is like you were there. There was no stacking up. There was, I'm cutting to the right to try and take a position off of Hinchcliffe. And I really should have slowed down a lot more because I just hit a guy who had nothing to do with nothing that I was trying to do and ruined his race. Oh, by the way, he's one of three championship contenders. I just ruined his championship possibilities. And 17 laps later, whatever, Part of the car that I hit ended up failing and truly ended his race. 
stacked up my ass. Just lame. Truly lame. So, then you can't even mention the guy's name, right? Can't even say, I'm sorry, my bad. Like, again, you're not, there's nothing coming back from this. Like, oh, well, Roger Penske called. Now he wants you to drive for him. I did tell uh, McLaren PR or communications boss, Tim Bampton, I said, can we, uh, can we coordinate a, uh, a, a tweet together that McLaren has signed Ed Jones for its third car for next year just to thoroughly confuse the heck out of people. He got a little bit of a laugh out of that. Um, I'm going to just leave this be, but this was just so sad for me because not only was it unnecessary, and look, I, Ed didn't want to hit Pato, okay? I think I, I feel comfortable assuming this. But this does leave me with the thought that going forward, since we had this happen twice late in the season with championship contenders, like real championship contenders, not the person in eighth who has the slimmest mathematical possibility, but in two of the final four races of the year, we had someone who was nowhere near the championship wipe out people who were. I can only hope that IndyCar will take this seriously enough to put some form of incentive for people to no longer do that in future seasons. I haven't thought it out yet whether there's a marker in time where the you better not do it starts. Is it what next year we have 17 races? Is it with four to go? Is it with five to go? Again, by that stage, although, again, there's probably six, seven, who knows how many mathematically possible. Usually you're down to two or three. Um, Where do we start this? Where you say, from this race forward, if you, who are not in championship contention, hit, take out, massively disadvantage someone who happens to be you not only get parked for that race, but you lose, pick a number, like a real number, 100 driver's points, 100 entrant points. That's like 20-ish percent of what you're going to get on the season. Like, just put it at such a place where when we get to whatever trap at whatever corner late in next year's season and future seasons, the next Ed Jones will be fully aware of who is in front of him. And if he wants to make a passing attempt, when and where he should break to ensure that that title contender is not hit, spun, and eventually out of the race with broken components. Otherwise, you go from wherever you are in the championship to uh, effectively a giant parachute opening up and dragging you to the back and also potentially seriously jeopardizing your team in the leader's circle, uh, the entrance points and maybe risking losing something there. So I would love to see that because when you have this happen twice in the last four races, it tells me that there is not enough fear and concern within those who are not vying for a championship to not screw the people who are. So this is the thing that, if we're talking corrective behavior, 
giving Ed Jones a drive through penalty at Long Beach for ruining an entire season's worth of work and the potential of earning a championship. I know the odds were slim for Pato, but damn it, the odds were there. And who knows how the rest of the race might have played out. This wasn't just, oh, man, you, you messed up the guy's Long Beach. It was, we just spent a lot of money to get through a whole year and you just destroyed this possibility for no reason, Mr. 21st place in the championship. It's just maddening. So we're moving on. Where are we going next? Uh, we're going to a practiced observer. As I mentioned in the intro, I'm going to keep this one a little bit short here because I need to do something deeper in written form. Uh, a practice ob- observer, as I struggled to say your screen name, I don't know why, from Reddit says, Hi, MP. Enjoyed the Long Beach GP as the finale this year. Wouldn't mind. That change was made permanent. Same here. Mention that to our man, Jim McCallion, who runs and has run the, the LBGP forever. Uh, and I said, what I'd really like is a double. Let's keep the April date, but also add a finale, a second date. And he said, oh, hey, I'd love to do it. Sure. Uh, but again, uh, I don't know if that would ever happen, but your point of ending the season on a street course where there is some real drama. And I know I, we just spent a decent time diving into a guy who created unnecessary drama. I love the chance for that drama that we get from a street course minus the idiocy that ruins championship contention stuff. Uh, it says what I did not enjoy were the serious errors made by race control during the race. First throwing the green with only six cars lined up looks seriously amateur. Totally agree. Second, holding off on closing the pits and seeing cars flying past the stationary Pato Award was the most dangerous thing I've seen happen in any car this year. Eh, He was rolled back into a position where nobody was going to run into him. Uh, That's not a natural place on the track for drivers to really get to. Not saying they've never been on that stretch of track on the exit of turn 11. Just saying that that's not the natural place for the cars to end up. So I wouldn't agree with that at all. Um, Go on to say, I don't like closing the pits under the full course yellows, but this was the time you're supposed to do it and race control didn't do it. So yeah, the, the main issues here again, coming back is Saturday and it wasn't just Saturday of the yellow flag in turn 11 who did or didn't slow enough the 10 or 15 minutes or Lord knows how long they took to try and look through all this the small number of adjustments made to those deemed to have sped Pato being one who was, who was tossed backwards uh, while his team on the NBC broadcast reacting to it said, uh, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, I'm not even paraphrasing long story short. They said, yeah, uh, our other (laughs) driver Felix, like really, you know, if we're talking about people who might get, uh, penalized like man we were totally expecting felix to be the guy not pato and yeah pretty much everyone agreed wow we're talking about people that blew through there yeah uh so how do you exactly get the guy who on the same team if you had to pick between two the one who was less a foul than the other i don't know there's a lot of other stuff going on and blocking nonsense wasn't my concern here is not just limited to Saturday at Long Beach. 
it's a culture problem. It's an ongoing thing. What Romain was thrown backwards at Portland for quote blocking, and we can keep moving backwards for who was penalized for blocking or whatever else. Um, just there's a broken culture. There's a culture change that needs to happen in IndyCar's race control. So again, I'm just mentioning it in a very brief, uh, abstract sense. Uh, but yeah, um, this is the one big area Penske Entertainment needs to overhaul going forward because the they've lost the paddock. And I'm not saying every single team is on the outs or feeling that, but I can just tell you the majority is in a place where uh, I'm not talking ticky-tack, oh, they penalized us and I'm mad, and so therefore I have negative things to say about them. I'm talking about way too many people saying it's time, something has to give, Um, whether it's a complete overhaul with staff, whether it's a complete rethink of how things are done. I have my opinion that I'll I'll share in print here soonish, but yeah, um, that was the thing that made me sad to close the year with so many amazing highs on the driver and team and all these achievements and to have the confidence in race control at what feels like, and I, I can only base this on maybe 10 or 12 years of what's coming to mind, having covered IndyCar for the last long time, it feels like we're at an all-time low. Um, that's not good. And I don't think Penske Entertainment would be comfortable uh, continuing uh, with that situation being what it is. So rough, 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 rough. Sorry if I just sound like I was doing a dog impression. Daniel Summerskill says, how pleasing was it to see Sebastian Bourdais, the French fry, get a solid top 10 finish at Long Beach, considering at the end of lap one, the car was stalled and dead last. It's quite an achievement. And just why was Seb's rear end Getting so much attention this year from the other drivers. I know. I mean, I know. Leave him alone. Leave Seb's butt alone. Uh, yeah, super happy. I think I mentioned on Sunday's hamburger and french fry show, his dad just, again, loved the guy. Had dinner with Seb and the whole Bourdais family Saturday night. Um, but his dad was like his kid just won an Olympic gold medal. I like truly jumping up and down fists in the air. Ah, like so happy went over and like fist bumped AJ Foyt. And so I told that to Seb who didn't see any of that. Cause he was just coming to a stop and pit lane and getting out of the car and all that. And he was laughing. He was like, yeah, I said, it was funny to watch him before I could even say, he's like, yeah, I bet AJ's like, who the hell is this guy? So, um, yeah, AJ had the look of someone who was like, son, this is only, we didn't win the race. You know that, right? Uh, they must get their numbers wrong in, in France or something. Um, it was just awesome to see, though, uh, knowing that they've had definitely some struggles this year uh, for Seb to get an eighth, uh, qualifying, what, 24th, but then getting, you know, effectively dropped to last after VK hit him and spun him and stalled. Yeah, that was awesome. I can only hope, Daniel, that we get him back in IndyCar. Yes, I'm just going to leave it at that for the moment right now. Uh, Let's see, where can we go? Where should we go? 
What are we doing here? I have no idea. Uh, we're going to go to Chase and Akiri from Facebook. It says, is there any explanation for why Meyer Shank Racing kept Elio out so long in that first stint? Seems like a number of questionable pit strategy calls cost Jack Harvey better results over the past few seasons. Can adding two drivers of Elio and Pagano stature in 22 trigger a change in mindset to more conventional pit strategies? Now, uh, this is one, Chasen, where in my plans for the day, one of them involved ringing my good pal, Michael Shank, to say, Michael Shank, I love you. You're an awesome guy. One of my favorite people. You have been for 20-plus years. What is going on? Because just as Townsend Bell could not figure that out during the broadcast, I could not figure that out during the broadcast. Many of you could not figure that out during the broadcast. What is it you're seeing that we aren't? I don't have an answer for you because I did not get a chance to ring Mike, but I will because I need to understand what it seems like. Is they're still behaving like they're the small team that doesn't believe they belong where they are? What are we doing up here? Wait, what? Huh? And they're acting like they're scared. Acting like, well, this, we don't, they haven't thrown us out yet. So let's try not to get caught. It's really weird because on too many occasions, said this before because this has happened before this season and the same questions come in, this possibly the biggest and most egregious, I would say. Just do what everyone else is doing and you'll be fine. You might not win, but I don't know if anyone was expecting Elio Castroneves to win Long Beach. Podium? Yes. Podium would be amazing. Podium would be fantastic momentum. Great photographs for all the sponsors to see, all the potential sponsors to see. There's that guy in that fire suit and all those names, spraying champagne, holding a trophy aloft. (sighs) Instead, I don't remember where they finished chasing, to be honest. I know it was way the heck out of nowhere. Uh, But that's what happens when you go, hey, you're up there and you're featuring, and now you're not. All right, honestly, I'm not even going to bother tracking where you ended up because it, it should not have been that way. So I need to get an answer as to why that specific decision was made, but also why that kind of decision has been made multiple times this year. It's even happened in IMSA with their sports car team where you just scratch your head and say, This is someone who is, the behavior is like someone who is super nervous at the blackjack table. And they're up. And they got a big old stack of chips. But they're playing like they're afraid they're going to lose it all. And they're making decisions, hitting when they should stay and otherwise. I think I just messed up my gambling references, by the way, but that's okay. Just playing like folks who believe they're going to lose, and so they roll the dice when it is not necessary. That has been the thing. And so is that real? Is that really what's happening or not? Want to find out? 
and we'll include that probably in my cooldown lap column when I'm done here chasing. And also, I think I worked three competing in non-fitting gambling references into one answer here. So that's free. Uh, it comes free here in the podcast. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Sometimes I make myself laugh because, uh, yeah, not because it's funny, because I just scratch my head at myself. Uh, Jamie Bender, we're staying with Elio. I'm an Elio fan for sure, but the contact with Rossi looked to be his own fault, and his response came off as a bit, does he know who I am? How dare he get in my way? Which is unfortunate. This is referencing morning warm-up. Not the race, not qualifying, but morning warm-up. Since we all know how emotional Elio can be, was this just a case of that, or do you think he had a valid reason to be that angry? Is he the kind of guy who will patch that up with Rossi or just move on? <sighs> Great questions here, Jamie. 100% Elio's fault. His expectation at that narrowing section of the track headed towards the, the fountain where you can easily kind of get tossed back and forth like a pinball, just bing, 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 if you get it wrong, because the track kind of bulges out on the right and you curve around, you go to the left and it bulges on the left and then you need to cut around to the right again. I mean, again, the track, it collapses in on itself almost. So there really is not space for two cars to go through where Elio was trying to go through. I don't know exactly what he was trying to do at the time, right? Meaning, uh, let me rephrase it. I don't know what he was trying to do in terms of that outing. Obviously, he was trying to get by Alex. We know that part. But was he on a multi-lap stint trying to get a read on whether it was tire degradation or some other aspect of the handling I don't know. Was he, again, on a mission for three, five, seven, however many laps, and in his mind, all he's thinking is, I don't want this interrupted. I need to get by this guy so I can complete my outing and come back with the information to feed my engineer what's needed to, whether it's make an adjustment, get a read on a chain, whatever it was. That's my guess of where his mindset was at. I have a mission. It involves multiple laps, and I don't want this to grind to a halt, tires cool off, and not just break the momentum that I have going on, but also kind of jeopardize what it is I'm out here trying to learn under instruction from my race engineer. That's my guess. Do I think that had he waited or been patient with Rossi and whether it was leaving the uh, the fountain or the next right-hander or the next right-hander onto the long straight. Could he have managed that situation with a tiny bit of patience? And then there would have been both nothing to talk about, but no damaged vehicle to then end his session early and jeopardize how sharp and good the car could be for the race. Totally. And I'm a Elio fan as well. Loved him, known him forever. All those things. 100% his fault. Uh, Rossi's response was 
brilliant. I love, again, I love Alexander Rossi. You're always going to get an economy of words with maximum either irony, uh, sarcasm, or humor thrown in. Like, truly, the guy is an artist with his words and responses. And his response to Elio was perfect. Uh, So, I don't know what he was thinking. No valid reason to be angry. I don't know if he is the one to reach out to Rossi and just move on. I don't know where if there's a stress point that comes from this, keeping in mind that uh, while they are, quote, teammates, they aren't. There's a technical alliance. Trust me, the Andretti guys want to beat the Meyer Shank racing drivers just as much as the MSR folks want to beat them. Uh, this is a business arrangement between MSR and Andretti, not one that obligates Rossi, Herta, Groshan now, or DeFrancesco to give anything away to the Meyershank racing drivers. So, interesting. I would question whether a Shank would urge elio to patch things up i don't think michael andretti would be the one going to rossi saying hey could you reach out because you know who elio was in the wrong i won't i cannot side with anyone who agrees otherwise because it makes no sense so it wouldn't be good for there to be something festering here i'll just leave it at that and knowing that there is a good business relationship between both teams I'd have to think some patching would taking place would take place here, whether it's now or in a little while. It needs to happen because what we can't have is retaliation at some point in time. Uh, let's see where should we go here. Uh, Jeff Zerneski says best wishes to you and your wife and your cats. So what was going on with Askew and Daly and their incidents? Daly posted a comment about Askew trying to wreck him. From what I heard and i'm not claiming this to be totally accurate i heard ask you might have felt like daily was putting up too hard of a fight i don't know if blocking is the way to put it i don't again I, i'm can't give you the perfect phrasing for it but thing i heard don't take it as as gospel but there might have been some frustration on ask you side of trying to get by daily and i think that that might have just come to a head I feel for Oliver. Y'all, who you've, if you've listened to the show, you know how much I think of that kid, our 2019 Indy Lights champion. 0.0. <laughs> Question as to whether that kid belongs to IndyCar and can be a phenomenal IndyCar driver. I also know that the three-race audition with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan Racing might have left it as a pretty hard sell to the team. Um, Too many mistakes. Too many incidents. Too many car parts to replace during an audition. Now, I realize that Santino Ferrucci, like, wrote off two cars or something like that. So I'm guessing if we had to compare bills, Santino might be in the lead. 
But I also know if you look at finishing positions, Santino showed that even if he messed up in practice or qualifying, for the most part in the race, he's going to get you back. He's going to reward your effort and faith and whatever the finances ended up being. That guy was a game day performer. Um, All I want to do, Jeff, is say super flattering things about Oliver and that he's given Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan no reason to consider Santino or Christian Lundgaard. But we don't lie to each other on this show. So what I have to say is, while privately rooting for him and hoping for nothing but the best to come out of this so that RLL had a crazy hard decision to make because all three are so darn good and equal, I fear that the number of mistakes he made over a three-race span probably made it easy for RLL if they wanted to go in a different direction to indeed make a decision for someone other than Oliver. He had that really solid ninth place at Laguna. Fell backwards in the race. So did Lingard, right? What, he started fourth and like finished 12th at the Indy Road Course, the second Indy uh, GP. So, you know, it's not the first time that happened, but falling, starting fourth and falling to 12th, starting, what was it, fourth or fifth, I think, for Oliver, and falling to ninth, you know, that was really good. But on the other side of that ninth, was it 24th after spinning on his own at the start of Portland? And then crash and practice, uh, I think it was, at Long Beach. And then another crash and a finishing of 22nd. So feel for him. Hope that things work out, that we get to have him in IndyCar. Just no decision-wise... Um, boy, I do not envy our friends at RLL and what they, uh, what they have to come up with here to decide who is going to drive their hot rod. Uh, let's see. You already spoke a little bit about Long Beach being a perfect finale. So, uh, Mikhail 24 RD, I think that's your first submission maybe coming in on Twitter. Thank you for sending that in. So yeah, uh, I'm with you. Give me a, give me both. Uh, give me both April and season finale. Uh, let's see, Amjad at Amjad Mazarek on Twitter. I think another maybe first timeish submission, at least maybe the first time I'm reading one, at least Amjad it says, Marshall, best to your wife and the cats and to you as well. Look at that. Uh, I have a very important question. Where the heck was Snoop? So I was promised Snoop dog. And yet I did not see him at Long Beach. I heard the same thing. I don't know where he was. I did not see him. Um, Gosh, I'm just going to embarrass myself. I know he's not a musician, but was it Salomon Dream? Uh, Pato's friend was there, saw him unknowingly, took a photo of him. Apologize. A little bit of an age gap here. Uh, Don't exactly know what the guy does, but I just know that he's got a decent amount of social media followers and he's friends with Pato and was there cheering his boy on. But I'm trying to. Oh, I did see Vince Neal. (laughs) I did see Vince Neal. Took a photo of Vince. Uh, on pre-grid on Sunday, and he was decked out in a number 10 NTT Data Ganassi shirt and hat, I believe. Um, 
guess he's the second Motley Crue member I've been right next to. I got to interview in person of uh, Nikki Six a couple years ago. And then I interviewed Vince a few years ago for a podcast. I still got to get produced and done on his time in Indie Lights. I also spoke with his co-driver, Tommy Byrne, his team owner, Norm Turley. So it's not just Vince talking about it. It's, it's actual kind of multi-voice thing. So I got to put that together. But didn't get a chance to talk to him. Doubt he'd even remember we had the conversation. But um, did get to see him. So no Snoop. Got to see Vince Neal. And although I grew up uh, loving... Motley Crue from their very first album. Um, I would have been a little bit more geeked to see Snoop, but uh, I don't know if I would have enjoyed the wafting smell coming off of Snoop, though. So, yeah, I know I'm from California. That stuff has never interested me. It just makes my stomach turn, the smell of it. Um, boy, I can tell you, too. I don't know if it's legal, illegal. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you in both hotels that I stayed at in Long Beach, uh Maybe it just it's a normal thing in the good old LBC, but yes, some of that California herbal product nonstop. Like, oh my, uh, anyways, yeah, to the point of like putting a towel beneath the door to not let it in. Uh, I think most people do that to not let the smell out. Yeah, there, there was no people worrying about the smell getting out. It was pretty crazy, but uh, to invoke our man Juan Montoya. It is what it is. Uh, Jeff Greendike says, MP, we so want to know, did you get fried chicken with our new champion? Did not. Total failure on my part. Uh, we did try and get, we were trying to go to Roscoe's on Friday night. Didn't end up happening. Uh, texted him while I was at Roscoe's, walking into Roscoe's Sunday night uh, with Racer.com editor Mark Lendenning and my old pal Sean Heckman uh founder co-star of dinner with racers and he texted back that he was doing shots with the ceo of ntt data (laughs) um and i still got to post that little uh interview with him after he won the championship where he reveals yet again i know he's mentioned on the show before he's never had alcohol so he was actually doing i think tequila shots maybe uh drinking alcohol for the first time so and then he followed that up with is it too late to go there to roscoe's and it actually was there's no way he was going to make it on time so didn't happen but um i hope to have it happen sometime soon for sure uh let's see ryan terpster you're back again what is the story about why ganassi chose to hire polo uh it's genius but what did they see it's a story that uh i wanted to to do right away and i'm just slow rolling that a little bit ryan because i don't know we got like many months to fill during the off season but i'm going to get to that here soon i actually spoke with chip earlier tonight but it was on a unrelated topic and um really wasn't interview time so i'll uh i'll buzz him here in a couple days and hopefully get that coming soon because like you i want to know what he saw uh so let's see where else can we go our pal the retro rebel the amazing olivia she of teenage indie car coverage leadership and brilliance uh any chance i get to share tweet big up whatever olivia i'm gonna do it because she is just all kinds of awesome plus as i always say jokingly probably my future boss at some point in time because she's going to take over coverage of indycar 
Uh, she says, all I want to know is how do we get the Alex Pillow Roger Wark art on a T-shirt? Referring to the very custom 2021 IndyCar champion artwork that I had Roger work up in the event that Alex did indeed win the title. And so it has Alex uh, as his gorilla self, but holding up the Aster Cup upside down with fried chicken falling out of it. So got some stickers of that made, Olivia. And uh, it's been a busy week, and I'm flying out on Friday again uh, to get to Indy for Robin's Memorial. But uh, I'll try and get some of those up for sale, the stickers at least this week. Uh, and then I haven't decided, I just need to talk to Alex like, hey, do you want, is that a t shirt you'd want people to have? And if so, then um, I'll ask our pal, Mr. Costca, if he can put those up for sale. But regardless of that, even if Alex says no, because you are Olivia and the Retro Rebel and truly a pint sized factory of awesome. You're going to get one. So there you go. But that's just because you're you. And we need to do everything we can to feed the the raging content generator that is you. Uh, because you do, even just being as young as you are, give so much to IndyCar. And I'm happy to say this because I mean it. And I'm not saying this just to poke at some of the other reporters or media types keeping in mind that not everybody's a reporter some folks just come and kind of do their vlogs or blogs or whatever but you know for those who don't know the retro rebel at underscore retro underscore rebel on the twitters uh she's also on instagram she works harder than the majority of those who cover indycar she's not exclusive to indycar she does a lot of other cool stuff too with well, just a lot of stuff that's really cool. Please follow, subscribe, do all those things. I'm not telling you to do that here. I'm just saying follow her. She's awesome. But she works harder than the majority of folks who I see with an IndyCar hard card who go and eat the food and take the free gifts and do all the all the stuff, taking all the spoils of being a reporter. Like Here she is doing her math homework and then editing videos to post about IndyCar because she loves it and isn't getting paid to do all this, but she nonetheless is outworking a lot of folks. So just some honest recognition for a young, young woman who I hope continues in this arena and really, truly, once you're done with high school and who knows, college, whatever, I hope to see you alongside me and many others uh, doing what you do in the IndyCar paddock or IMSA or whatever as just a badass reporter leading the way for the next generation. So there you go. A little bit of love for Olivia. Her dad's amazing as well. Like they're just the coolest combo. So let's go to uh, Noah Stein. Says if there were a most improved team's last driver award for 2021 compared to 2020, not counting the rookies, who would earn it? P.S. Glad you're able to cover uh, this race in person. Would love to hear everyone else's thoughts. My immediate brain went to Sweden's Marcus Ericsson. He was good last year. He showed us that there was something last year. I would say the year-to-year for him was really impressive. The I think the the most 
honest answer would probably be Alex Pillow, but I don't know how much he truly improved. He improved, but I don't know how big that margin was from year to year. It feels like he had a typical rookie year last year, showed us some glimpses of real promise, but was with a smaller team, had everything to learn, no real expectations, whatever else, dropped into a proper, fully developed team, full budget, high expectations, with a year of experience under him. It feels like we saw the the honest version of who he was. All the rookie mistakes more or less weeded out. So that's just why that one's a little bit hard for me, Noah. Uh, Hard to really make grand statements about a rookie and where they're at uh, with a small team, and then they move to a big team. And how do you judge exactly how far they came in terms of improvement? Would say there was such a giant gem in the rough at coin that it just took a little bit of polishing and a little bit of shining up, and wow, this kid was ready to win a championship the moment he got to Ganassi. That's crazy. But I would say really in terms of coming from a place that seemed like it was pretty far from where it was the year before, I'd have to go with Erickson. Part of that's just because I think a lot of folks have had lower expectations for him. How might you do? I don't know, but eh, not crazy. I think he told folks this year, Sad that it ended with him and the tires making a bit of a boneheaded mistake, right? Just played himself, outbroke himself, uh, outspeeded himself into the uh, tire bears at turn one uh, while fighting for position with Rossi. Sad that it ended that way, but I like where he has come. The question I would have, Noah, is how much more is there to get is there a similar level of improvement awaiting Marcus in 2022? I don't know if I feel that. I feel like there's maybe 50% more of what we saw this year. If it was a hundred, whatever, if we're just using numbers from last year to this year, call that a hundred percent, whatever that amount of improvement was, I feel like there's about 50% of that left to get next year. And that's probably it. So, a little bit of fortuitous chasing everybody down and being a monster or maybe not having to chase people down. Maybe it's just starting up front, leading the whole way, and winning. But whatever it is, let's see if you can do that with authority, like a new garden has done so many times, like Pato has not done a ton, ton of, but we know that it's there, starting up front, staying up front, kicking a lot of butt Colton Herda like in his young career how many times has he done this his three wins this year involve either starting up front running away and embarrassing everybody or being fastest at the last race having a bad qualifying and then hauling ass to get up front and win and he's done this before as well um does Marcus Erickson have that? I sure hope so, because I love the guy, root for him, just a really excellent person, 
but also someone who continues to live his dream here in IndyCar. Uh, Jordan Darwin, MP. We know drivers like Rossi and Ray Hall are super talented, but they have a noticeable lack of wins the last few years. Who in the paddock needs an engineering change? Not because the engineers need to be replaced, but a change for the sake of team chemistry needs to be tried. Going to do something similar here, I think, Jordan, with a story on Racer. So I don't want to basically do the story in spoken version entirely. Spoken version entirely. But yeah, uh, great question. Love this one. Uh, I'll name a couple. Uh, I would say Aaron McLaren SP comes to mind. I don't know if it's changing race engineers so much, but I think that there's some strategery on personnel and who is placed where to add further support uh, to get the most out of some things right now that maybe aren't being maximized. Uh, that's the first one that jumps out. Um, see where else ed carpenter racing strikes me as a place that it's had some new blood within the last couple of years with peter coming in uh, there just seems to be something that was lost hard towards the end of the year i don't have a real exact idea as to what it was I know that renus went from everybody seemingly wanting to hire him away at ecr for the first half of the season then uh, he had his cycling crash, hurt himself. I don't honestly know what happened with his entry for the remainder of the season. But I can tell you that the finishes, it's a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Uh, if you kind of looked at all of his finishes for the year, covered up the after-the-crash results, and just looked at what happened beforehand, you'd say, oh, this is just can only continue to improve and go upwards. And then you look at what you cover up the first half of the season and see the the back half and go, where? What went wrong? Um, I mean, drivers don't forget how to drive. Engineers don't forget how to engineer. But there's something that stopped working there. Compounded by things quite a bit, you had the inverse, effectively, for Connor Daly where you look at the first half of his season and go, oh, boy, that was rough. And you look at the second half, and we're not talking podiums and wins, but hovering in or around the top half, 12th, 11th, 11th, 12th, like, right? Decent, very decent midfield or slightly better than midfield results. Uh, totally polar opposite from Renus a lot of bad luck thrown in. There's a lot of strategery things that went wrong. There's driver overheating. I mean, again, there's a lot of things you can point to that add up to the why. But I would just say that there was something weird enough to where you go, well, for half the season with one entry, kind of nowhere. And the other half of the season in the other car, it was definitely nowhere. And I realized that our man Ed Carpenter finished well at Indy in fifth, right? And the team as a whole finished well at Indy, right? Renus, what was eighth, I think. Um, but if you look everywhere outside of Indy, 
Ed wasn't super on fire as well in terms of speed. So I don't know if it's engineering changes. We're going to move this person out of the timing stand and put in someone new or different. But when you have that much talent in the cars, starting with the team owner, continuing with the youngest member who we know right renus the rocket like this we know how good he is that's not a question you look at connor we know how good he is and things didn't pan out super well for him too that might be the top team in the paddock where if i'm talking about really honest appraisals this is a place where it needs to happen so is it the addition of a new all-encompassing performance engineer like Ganassi did by taking Scott Dixon's championship-winning race engineer and Dario Franchitti's championship-winning race engineer, Chris Simmons, off the race engineering timing stand and saying, hey, you're now looking over all aspects of our performance and responsible for all the things that are going to make us better, whether it's setup, whether it's pit stops, whether it, just everything. Again, I is it newer, different people on the damper development side or simulation? Again, I I can just tell you this: you look at the results sheet, and they tell you if changes are needed. Uh, and just want to qualify here changes don't necessarily mean and i know this was your question but changes don't necessarily mean changes of personnel doesn't necessarily mean up you're out gotta go then everything's gonna magically get better that that doesn't always happen usually there are processes in place there are working habits styles and such that prove to be incompatible with success and so sometimes it is saying, hey, we love you. think you're really talented. You aren't getting the most out of yourself. We aren't getting the most out of you. The way we're doing things, just talking in a very general sense, you need to make some changes. So you're still the race engineer. You're not going anywhere. But we need to, we need to act a wee bit different. Um was watching some recaps of football games Sunday night, like at 11 o'clock in the hotel. And they were talking about Dan Campbell, former Atlanta Falcons head coach, who got fired. Um, Things had gone badly there towards the end, and it was just headed towards that eventual, dude, you're not going to be the guy anymore. You knew it was coming. It did come. It happened. There you go. Off he went. Spent some time away, really just looking within himself, why he did the things he did, how he came to the decisions that he made on whether it's play calling or personnel or just had a really frank assessment of himself as racing's equivalent of the race engineer uh, and other roles too. But that person who's in charge of performance and decided there were a number of things he didn't like about how he did things and some types of plays that he really liked to call but realized that, you know, I I fell in love with that too much. I need to 
I need to cut that out altogether. There are just a number of things that I am doing that are limiting the results for my team. So on top of us being able to hire more and do more and, again, spend more money on all kinds of things, sometimes that change also comes from, hey, man, um, let's reassess. And if that person can adapt, awesome. And if they can't, that's why you see teams. There are a lot of folks who've worked for a lot of teams in the series. And time comes to an end at one place. And maybe their personality or working style or talents or whatever are a better fit somewhere else. It's also situations where someone has been doing the same job with the same driver for a really long time. Maybe you start to run out of ideas, like really fresh, fresh ideas of how to solve something. Uh, Again, that's where the new driver who joins the team who has a different idea, maybe that helps revitalize things a little bit. Or a new engineer on another timing stand revitalizes oh hey i would have never thought to attack that issue that way Hmm, maybe we'll give it a try sometimes you just need to fire the person because to your point jordan this relationship has gone as far as it can so i don't have all the answers on the reasons why some of the things went wrong with certain teams this year that they did still trying to figure out some of that stuff that's why i'm not getting too heavy into specifics about aha this team would be fixed if this person went or this person improved or this person was moved into another role but i look forward to diving into that more and maybe giving you some greater insights in print uh we're gonna mash the throttle to get through the rest of the show here i'm hungry (laughs) it's been a long day and i actually still have work to do after we're done with this so we're gonna kick off the throttle mashing with Dan Gallagher, says, what are you hearing about Menards on alignment with Team Penske driver Simon Pagano seemed to be a really good fit. And Scott McLaughlin has a conflict through his obsession with Bed Bath & Beyond. Do not know, Dan. Uh, we'll be having Simon on the show here on Wednesday. It's one of the questions that's come up there. We'll ask him there. I would be surprised if that was part of the sponsorship package, just knowing that Menards has a wider relationship. Uh, I believe that extends into Cup with Penske, and uh, they're pretty good and territorial about how's this. How many Penske sponsors have you seen leave the team in the past, however long, to go to another team, at least an IndyCar? Uh, yeah. So I'd be shocked. I'd love to see the colors continue because I or color, I should say that chartreuse but uh the day glow yellow but yeah that'd be a surprise um andy brumbaugh says what happens to the unused leader circle from team penske assuming they do downsize to three cars for 2022 does the money go to the first car that didn't make the cutoff or is that money just kept in house by the series i don't know andy and the reason i don't know is there's two angles that come to mind here and i don't yet have a feel for what would happen. The bigger topic that I'm aware of, the bigger grumbling that I've heard for a number of months is Penske Entertainment would like to downsize the amount of money being spent here. It's a big number. 
It's not an insignificant number. And so part of me wonders, does that money just not go out? Um, I'm unaware of there being an attempt to have more than 22 leader circles. So, hey, you missed the cut in P23, but here you get one. If that were to happen, it would be a big surprise to me. So the major takeaway here that I know of, and or at least have heard of over and over again, is there's a lot of money going out. It's a bit of a surprise how much is being spent by the new owners, and this might be an area to be a bit miserly. Uh, what I've heard about in the past, and this is generalism, is... Look, if there is an unused one or if not everybody takes it up, that money will go into the overall pool and get divvied up. So, you know, divide that extra one point whatever million by 21, 22, and everyone gets a little bit of extra cake uh, with their checks. So we'll see if I can get an answer on that. No, just know, Andy, that the series is not fond of talking about leader circles. Uh, I don't know exactly why that changed. I mean, I do, and the new owners are never about talking about money, but this used not to be one of those, you know, if you ask, a, if you are heard by the NSA listening devices around IndyCar transporters on pit lane or at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, if you are heard to say the word leader circle, like the little red laser sniper rifle dots start popping up on your chest. Like, yeah, uh, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but it's kind of not too far from that. So I don't know how much more time I'm going to spend on leader circle stuff because it just bums me out. Uh, let's see. Jamie Bender, you're back. Says, I think Simon Paginota MSR is a great short-term move. Between him and Elio, they can transfer as much of Penske knowledge and operational ways over to them and help them become a top-tier team in the future. It sounded like kind of thing uh, was something Mike acknowledged they need to work on. They'll also have a strong chance at success next season right out of the gate. Also says, happy to see you back at the track. Prayers for you and your wife. Thanks, man. Yeah, I I like the signing of Pagano. For all the reasons you mentioned, for all the reasons Mike mentioned in the little video that we recorded Sunday morning and under embargo and sat on. Um, Meyershank Racing needs to improve a lot to become a consistent challenger in the series. What they've showed us with Jack over the last couple of years since they went full-time is exactly what you tend to see with a new full-time team. Huge peaks, huge valleys. So not a criticism of them. It's just a pretty normal process. And what's the best way to dig yourselves out of the valleys, live at minimum halfway up the peak, and then on the better days get all the way to the peak? Well, it's by bringing in a couple of folks who really know how to drive, how to preserve, how to push, how to inspire, how to everything. And so none of this is a criticism of Jack. I think Jack did an excellent job uh, at bringing everything that he could to the team. But he's never going to match a guy with 
three times as much experience in Simon and a million times as much as Elio. So as a organization, having two, you know, we can say Indy 500 winners, IndyCar champions, you know, those are the qualifiers that you add to help to understand the quality of the people that you're getting. But it's all the things that they know and did and the behaviors that they produced that achieved those things that have meaning to Meyer Shank racing. So I'm going to talk with Simon tomorrow, ask some questions, and hopefully have a, uh, a separate story to publish about this. But I just want to know how much he is ready to go in and have no concern about making friends. That's what the team needs. That's what would be in his best interest. If everyone here ends up hating me, but we are qualifying on average sixth or fifth everywhere we go, and we're finishing third, fourth, fifth, sixth, second, first, if we're living in the top six and qualifying and the race almost everywhere we go, and I had to piss everybody off by critiquing everything and pushing back even when you make an improvement. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's great, but no, there's still even more to do. Don't get happy. Like, I hope that's who shows up. Everybody likes to be liked, for the most part, Rob Miller being an exception, but what they need is brutal a-hole Simon Pagano, and I know that he has that in him because I've certainly experienced it before, but on a professional, I work for you, but I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you a winner and a champion. If that guy shows up and the team responds to that the way they should, this Jamie has the potential for being a, we spoke about biggest driver improvement year to year. This has the potential of launching Meyershank Racing way the heck up uh, in the entrance standings, in the pecking order, you know, they could have a Aero McLaren SP-like transformation year to year if everything they should be doing together gets done. Uh, let's see, Wilfla29, you're one of a couple to ask this, uh, says, Hey, MP, great seeing you back at the track the last three weeks. Thank you. I enjoyed all the content, including the hamburger and french fry vids. Reportedly, the French IndyCar broadcast at Long Beach mentioned Toyota coming back as a third manufacturer. While we have, uh, while we all have, let me reread this. I apologize. While we all have to take a quote, believe it when we see it approach with manufacturer rumors, does this seem at all plausible? Here's what I can tell you about this, and I'm going to leave it intentionally short. The mention, which I haven't heard, but I have seen a number of folks say, hey, Pruitt, did you know that it was mentioned on the French broadcast that Toyota was a possibility? Would not have been the first time that I've heard that. I'll leave that there for now. Uh, Jake Ward says, is Santino being sponsored by Hy-V in Xfinity a giveaway leading to who... They're going to put the number 45 Ray Hall car. I wish that's the way it worked, Jake. I would say that Hy-V, which 
is in the business of promoting itself and making a profit realize that, hey, this kid competes in a series that's pretty darn popular too, and he's pretty darn good. And I don't think that there was an overabundance of sponsorship on his car. Um, I think this was just Hy-Vee being really smart, saying, hey, uh, yeah, let's go try and do good things over here. I would not take that as an indicator of who is driving the 45 car next year. I know it was suggested during the Monterey broadcast that it's already been decided and that Oliver Askew would not be one of those drivers. Uh, again, I think that's kind of been, might have been decided based on results, but uh, everything I've heard for a little while now is it was going to take an ex- something extraordinary for Christian Lungard to not eventually get the uh, get the seat. From what I have heard, and I'll try and put this in my next silly season update, the rumored amount of budget that Lungard brings with him would be impossible to turn down. So I would not be the least bit against Santino getting the nod. I think he, again, the kid produces fireworks, even if he's not known for being the most wholesome human being. But if someone has a line in Las Vegas on who will drive the car uh, and someone who knows proper gambling tells me how to do it, I would go and find all the quarters and pennies and whatnot uh, beneath the cushion on the couch and put them on Lungard. I just can't see any way that he is not the driver, uh, knowing what he is rumored to be able to bring financially. Uh, John Illick, I think, says, who will likely be driving at Dale Coin Racing and Vassar Sullivan next season? John, that is another significant silly season topic that I'm going to save for what I end up writing next. Um, it's a deep topic, a deep, deep topic. One that is, yeah, deeper than just simply who's going to drive for them. Uh, Tim Falkowitz, as we get down to uh, our last few questions. Our man Tim, really appreciate you, Tim, by the way, for everything you did uh, all of last year and beyond putting together the questions for the show. And then when you handed off the baton to our pal Jim Kaiser, who's been doing them this year, and then stepping in when uh, Jim needed uh, a little bit of a break for some family-related items. Uh, again, appreciate you, brother. Really do. It says, uh, with the additional cars coming next year, are there any concerns with engine supply or the manufacturers staffing up and building more engines to support the additional cars coming in 2022? Oh, if only there weren't new engines, truly brand-new engines coming for 2023. Uh, the scenario you paint of are they ramping up, making more might be possible. Reality is I am aware of the maximum number both manufacturers want to support. Um, Honda, as I understand, is already at that number. Chevy, I think, is within one of being at the max number they want to be. And I'm talking full season, not Indy 500 or, you know, very short part-time campaign. The reason that they have a hard number and they're sticking to it is for the very reason I mentioned. Brand new, all new hybrid motors coming in 2023. 
they've got to focus forward to 23. And so hiring more people and building new engines that are going to run for a single season and then truly get stuffed into a closet makes no financial sense. Therefore, while I do think there's a possibility of IndyCar could be at 28, 29 full season cars if a number of things come together between now and St. Pete in February, it's a case where that's just not going to happen because together, uh, combined, the engine manufacturers are just not going to uh, do the things to take on those extra couple of leases. Stitch Turner, our pal Stitch, who just asked to join the Prude group. By the way, if you want to join the Prude uh, group, ask me. I'm not involved, but I can point you to those who are. Matt Philpot, aforementioned Ryan Terpstra, John Wojnar, um, James Bethay, uh, there's just a, a Chris Ward, a bunch of kooks, many of whom you might see posting things or responding to things on my Twitter feed. Um, they can be found there. Just ask them. They'll get you uh, connected uh, on their little group chat thing. Um, that also includes your reigning brand new IndyCar champion, Alex Pelot. Not a joke. Uh, on somewhat rare occasion, busy guy. He does chime in and participate. Pretty funny. Uh, he asked, or he said, hey, let's take a selfie, uh, the two of us, for specifically for the Prue Day uh, at the end of Sunday. So we did that, and he posted that there. And I don't think some folks knew that he, you know, we, we were there together with the intent of that going straight to the Prue Day um, group chat. And so uh, Jeremiah Morell and a couple other good uh, good pals who were part of that group sent it to me like, look, and I'm like, I know, I was there. He wanted to do it just for y'all. Um, Stitch, who just asked to be part of it, and I hopefully was inducted or jumped in, says, with Indy Lights coming back in-house, what changes do you foresee for the series? Says, I'm happy about the continued projected growth of the car counts. Uh, and very thankful for Anderson Promotions. Says, I doubt Penske Entertainment Group is making this change to maintain the status quo. Uh, P.S. Ed Jones made me fairly mad. So, Number one thing to know is this is a standard operating procedure for Roger Penske, as I understand it. Uh, Roger is not one to leave things that he owns outside of his control. And so while I do not think he under fully knew every last little thing that uh, he took ownership of when he bought IndyCar and the Speedway. I do believe that this is one where he knew, hey, uh, there is an agreement in place with Dan Anderson, Michelle Kish, Anderson Promotions, uh, that runs through 2021. And once that is up, since we own this property and we're not fond of other people running our own stuff that we own, uh, we're going to bring this back in-house. So I don't interpret this as any kind of personal or negative thing or condemnation of the uh, uh, Anderson promotions. This is just straight up RP. For example, there were some part-time employees or remote employees of IndyCar um, when Roger bought stuff and they were given the option to move to Indianapolis slash Speedway, Indiana and be in-house and or full-time or not. And some chose not. And it was very much the same kind of business ethos. Hi, 
if you're here, if you're part of this and us, then you're here full time, all in with the team. And that's just what it is. A couple of tiny exceptions here, there that I know of, but that was the real message being sent, uh, all in. And so just apply that stitch to Indie Lights. Okay. So with that said, I have no idea what they're going to do. I have some ideas. I've heard some things. Expect the calendar to be shorter is what I've heard. I think I mentioned this last week maybe. Uh, look for fewer double, triple headers and whatnot. Uh, a couple of changes there. I think costs, something they're going to try and bring down significantly. I don't know what kind of incentive might be brought to the IndyCar team owners to get them into lights. That's where I keep thinking something's going to happen. Something leader circle related. If you are a IndyCar team without a lights program, you get amount A. If you are IndyCar team with a lights program, or maybe it's, you know, road to Indy in general, since there are other levels. Um, if you're without, you get a lower amount. And if you're with one of those teams, you have one of those teams, whether you created your own, have your own currently, or just forged a new alliance somehow. You're going to get a little bit more. There has to be some sort of financial incentive for IndyCar teams to do this because they've had the opportunity to do this for Lord knows how long, and all but one or two, for the most part, have been involved. So right now, really, who's there? Well, it's Ricardo Hunkos. He's just come back to IndyCar, uh, but it's Hunkos and it's Michael Andretti. And... Boy, there are a lot of other names in IndyCar who aren't there. So are you going to get them there by guilt? No, that's been tried. hasn't happened. You're going to get them there by selling them on the merits. Well, hey, you get to develop new talent. You maybe get new sponsors that come through. You groom new crew members who are hard to find. Eh, none of those things have worked. Cash? Cold hard cash. Probably going to be the thing. So I'll keep my eye out for that stitch, but... uh, Yes. Tell me how else you're going to get folks who've had an opportunity to do something who have not to change their way. It's usually cash money, y'all. Three questions to go. Caleb Whistler, what a season for IndyCar, says. State of the sport seems stronger than it's been. How does the series maximize this momentum going into the offseason? Says, with IndyCar having meetings over the offseason regarding rules and procedures with teams and key stakeholders... What are the top five items IndyCar needs to address heading into 2022? Great question. Not going to give you five. Give you a couple. Let's look at awareness. It's the biggest problem IndyCar has had for quite some time. Decades. Hi, we were once the, the deal. We were once the biggest deal in town. It's mostly the 80s half-ish of the 90s we were the biggest thing granted you could roll that back to 70s and 60s and all that but i'm just talking about modern era kind of the last vestiges of indycar being the biggest motor racing property in the country it started to peter out right around the split mid 90s uh still very popular for the rest of the 90s don't get me wrong very popular but nascar had overtaken it and Off we go. Um, How IndyCar lifts itself up 
into the national awareness again is the biggest question that awaits the biggest answer which we've had for the longest duration of time caleb so for longtime fans i'm telling you nothing new here this is the world peace world hunger question gosh we've known this needs to be improved for our collective betterment for a really long time but we can't find the answer no one would go to bed hungry (laughs) no problems would exist in the world if we knew how to solve all those problems super overstatement there IndyCar is one big thing is, hey, we just had an amazing season, like you said. This is the best season I can remember, and I can't even tell you when. For so long. It's incredible. I mean it. Not not overselling things. This was the best IndyCar season I can remember for, I don't know, how long. Altogether, start to finish. Holy cow. What do you do with that? How do you use what just happened to get people to give a fart about the series when it returns in five months, six months, however many months time. What do you do? I don't know, but that has to be number one. It's always number one. That's the thing. Whether it's a great season or a boring season, it's always the number one thing. Hi, the guy who finished 38th at Sunday's NASCAR cup race has a higher profile than any of our drivers. The NASCAR driver who finished 24th can get on any TV show, any talk show, any, any, you name it. Oh, you're NASCAR. Well, let's open the door and you get everything. IndyCar. What, what exactly is that? Who, who are you? What are you? I think I heard my grandpa talk about that once. Um, that thing, brother, remains the, the bane of, indie cars and our collective existence so what i wonder and you can never really get answers straight answers about this is where does this sit within the series in terms of recognition we can come up with five plans a night five things hey and we're going to do more of this and hey social media have you heard instagram all the kids love it we're going to tickety-talk our way to popularity. We're going to, like, every single person on the planet Earth that is looking for followers and recognition is thinking the same thing. It's not going to get you to where you want. So I appreciate the social media influencers that have been brought out. I've enjoyed some of the content that I've seen. Truly, I have. That's come from them coming out to the races and whatnot. That's, again, all fine. I don't think it's really moving the needle. So the number one thing is, hey, how do we get people to care? How do we get this new champion, this little ball of sunshine? How do we get him and his big smile and bright personality and happiness and love and charm? How do we get that kid onto name the shows? How do we get this kid who's just living the American dream at 24 years old? How do we get him in front of people so they can feel his passion and, and feel his story and how his life has changed coming to America, racing in the oldest American racing series? How do we do that? 
I mean, I'm not a marketing or PR or whatever person. It seems like this would be a thing that a lot of folks might be working on trying to make happen. And I, if you got to start at the bottom show with the lowest ratings and work your way, keep doing it. What are the podcasts? And I'm not talking about this one. I'm talking about the ones with millions and millions of weekly listeners. Where do you, how do you get this kid? How do you get Pato? How do you get, how do you get, I'll just apply that to a whole bunch. How do you get these people out in front? I know that everyone else is trying to do the same thing with their drivers in the world of motor racing. We know that NASCAR, again, red carpets waiting. Penske Entertainment. It implies there's some sort of grasp about the entertainment side, but that's the focus. This is the, the reason for its existence. What levers can be pulled to get our drivers out of the shadows of like lower tier racers and other series. If our champ has worse odds of gaining popularity compared to again, midfield cup drivers, man, that, that, that's just, uh, that's just really hard, really, really hard to, uh, to try and reconcile. So that I would say is number one. Uh, the number two thing I would say, I'll mention, by the way, your new champion, Alex Pillow, 28.8 thousand followers. It's a big number compared to the average person. It is a small number compared to a champion athlete in almost any discipline, maybe other than throwing axes. But for all I know, maybe the champion in the axe throwing league or whatever it's called is way, way bigger. I don't know. But that to me, like that's the metric you look at. And I realize we can switch over to another social media platform that is maybe a little more popular than Twitter. I just know that Twitter, again, has a pretty wide reach because it's been around for a little bit longer. But whether it's Twitter or IG or TikTok or wherever, 28.8,000. I don't even, let me see if I can, I don't even know if I'm spelling the guy's name right. Noah, Noah Gragson. Noah Gragson, uh, NASCAR driver. 62.4 thousand followers. Now, this is my ignorance on display. I'm not pretending like this is something that anyone else has this level of ignorance. I couldn't tell you which team he drives for. And I'm scrolling down, and I, I'm, I'm seeing here. But has the guy ever won a cup race? Is he even in cup? I don't know. I could be wrong. He to- could totally be an Xfinity, but... What I think he drives for RCR, maybe. Um, again, I'm not being funny here. This is just me exposing my, fo- embracing my ignorance. But you know, would you consider Noah Gragson a top twenty NASCAR Cup name and personality? Again, maybe. I don't know. Is he 19th? Is he 21st? I don't know. But this guy 
who I, I don't know. Again, maybe he's won a race. Maybe he hasn't. I don't know. Awesome if he has. But he sure as heck isn't a champion, and he sure as heck isn't a name that is regularly mentioned among the big monsters of Cup. He's got nearly three times as many Twitter followers as IndyCar's new champion. So when Noah Gragson is dwarfing Alex Pillow, I would say that this is problematic. I think possibly he might be in Xfinity and not so much Cup, which would make things even worse. So... And I think I'm scrolling through now and I'm seeing like Jar Motorsports. Okay, so kind of funny if I said RC. Again, I have no idea. I don't. But I know this guy, and he, I'm sure he's a sweetheart and he's awesome and he's going to kick ass and have the best career from all time. Um, not even close. Not even close for Alex in terms of achievement. And yet, this is where we are with our new champ. So huge disconnect between IndyCar and the auto-loving, technology-loving world. Obvious overstatement that we love ourselves some Chevy and Honda. We love their commitment. We love everything that they do that supports IndyCar in a positive way. We love, well, I love, that we're going to a hybrid powertrain. There's a bunch of great stuff here. We're going to be fast and loud. We're going to have a million horsepower, and it's going to be all these great things with electronic horsepower included as well. You want to talk about something, Caleb, where there needs some fixing and reconnecting here, just like IndyCar needs to reconnect with uh, America again and have its drivers and cars and team owners and all the interesting personalities become something that more Americans know about and care about. Uh, it's been a good while since the automotive world, mostly talking about media, magazines, TV type stuff, but also the industry too, have looked to IndyCar as a place that was the slightest bit relevant. Uh, hey, I mean, your motors are super cool. I mean, they are really. These little tiny 2.2 liter twin turbo V6s making great power making great reliability like there's again they're they are amazing they're just not seen as something that really fits where the automotive sector is moving we know that electrification and uh, alternate fuel alternative fuels and so on and so forth we know that these things are where the industry is shifting the industry is shifting and as a result the industry looks to places where, from a competitive standpoint, a development standpoint, where might there be a place where we can do things? Where can we have some individuality while embracing the future? That hasn't been IndyCar. IMSA, while it might not have the same amount of fans, either reading content about the series or watching on television, um, IMSA's connecting with manufacturers because they're doing things that allow those manufacturers to express themselves. IndyCar, with its formula, highly controlled, highly restrictive, 
even though we have something new in hybridization, it's not really a place where manufacturers outside of the ones that are already here who are going to continue doing what they do, just not something that has really piqued the interest of other manufacturers to come in and play. There's something that isn't exactly working. I know that if we get a third, right, so many problems will be solved. We'll all feel great and, wow, look, wonderful. Even so, still doesn't mean the problem's going to be solved. It just means that we've had two for 11 years, 10, 11, 12 years, however many, and maybe we'll add a third. We started out with three in 2012. Didn't really change fortunes so much. A third coming in now would be fantastic. It would definitely make a lot of things better. But I don't, Caleb, think that a third coming in is going to magically make the rest of the automotive industry say, oh, well, then we got to be there too. Or those who have however many pages to dedicate in a trade magazine, a newspaper, video content, whether it's TV or streaming or otherwise, it's a disconnect there. And so there's some things to think about for IndyCar too. I don't know if these are all specific leading into 2022, but knowing that this new motor package is coming in 23, there's the opportunity to do some interesting things with electronics in a general sense, controls, you name it, uh, with the new chassis and, and whatnot in the years afterwards. There's some pretty cool opportunities here for IndyCar to say, hey, new automotive companies, old automotive companies, the your partners who help supply the content, the, your products that help assemble these vehicles, cutting-edge stuff, whatever it is, like, hey, how do we, frankly, get in on what's working, say, in IMSA, and have you all want to be here too? Not saying I want any manufacturers to leave IMSA to go to IndyCar, but, hey, give them a reason. <laughs> They'll be there, right? Um, give them a reason. Don't know if we're giving them a reason right now, Caleb. So it'd be great to really dedicate a lot of time thinking about that and coming up with some plans to help improve that. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. So something to improve over multiple years. Those are the two things, brother. And I know this is a bit of a longer answer than I planned, but these are the two things that come to mind that are, are almost perennial questions never seem to have the right answer jamie carr penultimate man marshall says best you and your wife let's talk catering for the awards banquet each driver gets their own meal obviously alex below will get fried chicken colton hurt some kind of taco jack harvey some kind of baked goods shepherd's pie maybe anyway i know there's not time for the entire field but any other ideas for this culinary cornucopia says p.s of course there would be a frozen turkey in a shopping cart in honor of Uncle Bobby. Well, I do like the idea of, I don't know how we force exactly, but I do like the idea of making a lot of people really and truly eat uh, pork tenderloin sandwiches in honor of Robin Miller. So the just the reaction from those who've never had, that is something that I would love. Um... Let me see. Let's work down the 
we'll grab a couple here. So Bourdais, first of all, um, thoroughly enjoys Mexican food. So we've been to dinner twice over the last three race weekends. Both involve Latin American cuisine. Um, loves himself some margaritas too. Stronger the better. You didn't hear me say that though. Uh, what else? What else? Who you know? Here's the thing: there's too many drivers who just kind of lick grass and like sniff herbs and then drink electrolyte water, and that's them. That's their cuisine. They they weigh negative four pounds. They're they're you know pure muscle fiber and fast twitch whatever, and it's all just like yes you could survive in a desert for 12 years without food or water because apparently you've trained your body to need neither of those things. Um, so a lot of the folks, I'm like, yeah, uh, I, I can't imagine you digging into anything like impressive or juicy, but <sighs> new garden lives for Japanese food, sushi for him. You know, the, the the only driver I would say that I have a, a strong feeling would be about eating something right, not something right for pure health reasons, but just we're going to go to the banquet. We're going to celebrate the year. We're going to cap things off. Our boy Scotty McLaughlin truly strikes me as someone who would have some sort of barbecue out back in the parking lot doing up his own big, I don't know what, whether it's steaks or sausages or whatever, burgers. He just strikes me as someone who would not go in and just eat some little dainty thing, a puff of quinoa. Okay, that was your dinner. Goodbye. I mean, I know that he eats super healthy and he's lost a bunch of weight and he's right slim and trim and kicking ass. But Scotty strikes me as a guy where, the folks, the catering folks cleaning up at the end of the night would get to his table. First of all, they'd need to use both arms to sweep all the empties off the table. So it would sound like 50 window panes being smashed with the sound of all the beer bottles being swept off the table into garbage cans. So that's the first thing. Um, and I do think there would be some giant like velociraptor scrapes into the plates from the fork and knife action going on of devouring whatever red meat that he had. I don't know about the other bits. I got to get to know him a little bit more. Is it uh, some kind of thing where, you know, is it potatoes? Is it this? I don't know, but I just have a feeling he's a hearty enough guy. And he gets life. And I love his approach to life, which is just let's do it right and balls out the whole time. I just feel like he would be the guy where, again, if you took photos of all the tables of all the drivers, his would be the one where we'd all kind of smile and go, F yeah, man, I want to be Scott McLaughlin. Friends, time to say goodnight. Thank you for everything you sent in. Thank you for everything for this season. Uh, I mean, it was so much fun. You all made it so much fun. We're going to do lots more of this. Uh, going to come back from Miller's Memorial. 
and then we'll uh, we'll kick one off. We got rookie orientation for Jimmy Johnson and Romant Groschon. Um next week. I don't know if I'll be out there for that or not. I might. Who knows? Uh, but it'd be another quick thing uh, as well that I would be uh, out there and back real quick. But got to talk to my wife. But nonetheless, so much IndyCar to talk about here. Season's over, but we're just getting started in the off season. So I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. I'll speak to you very soon. <laughs>